In one of last week's Pod Church devotionals, Pod Church number 17 for reference, I wrestled with a more complex picture of who the Pharisees were. Often seen as the boogeymen of the Bible, they're actually not as bad as we often think, and a more considered approach to them is warranted. That's got me thinking about one of my favorite Pharisees, Nicodemus. If we're not paying attention, we may well think of him in only one passing story. But when we look more closely, we find that there's a lot more to his story than we originally thought. And that may have more to say about our own faith story than we'd previously thought. So come with me on a journey into the world of first century Pharisees and Nicodemus. When we delve into the Aramaic and Hebrew origins of the Greek word Pharisee, Pharisea, we find a wealth of meaning. In its origins, it means to separate, to distinguish, and to explain. Commentators note that much of these origins can and should be taken in their positive and their negative connotations. For instance, they would separate themselves from that which was impure and they would separate themselves at times from the wider community. The same can be seen with being distinguished. Certainly their rigorous explanations of the application of the law can help them be seen as distinguished, and it would give them at times an overflated sense of their own worth. As we discussed in the earlier devotional, they find their circuitous beginnings in the exile in Babylon. There, the cornerstones of Jewish piety, the land and the temple, were gone. An evolution of Jewish faith practice was needed, one no longer centered on the land and the temple. It was in that crucible that a rigorous focus on study and application of the Torah became a more normative part of Jewish piety. With time, the Jewish exile in Babylon came to an end. Many chose to return to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Still others chose to stay in Babylon or travel the world. This was known as the diaspora or the dispersion. The next several hundred years saw an increased intermingling of Jewish life with other worldly expressions. Specifically, the Hellenization of the Jewish aristocracy and priestly circles in the second century brought on a strong desire in some sectors to cling ever more fervently to strict monotheism and a rigorous practice of the Torah. This gave rise to the group we know from the Gospels as the Pharisees. Since their inception, it's been a back-and-forth struggle for prominence and power between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and other groups like the aristocracy and the priestly order. Oftentimes bloody, 
By the time of the Roman occupation, a tense peace existed among these groups. You can see those tensions throughout the Gospels. Placed in Jewish society, they were often seen as being among the lower-level Jewish governmental officials and educators, oftentimes teaching the children of the nobility. Placed as educators, this provided a good vantage point to look out for and prepare the next generation of Pharisees. Often called synagogue schools, children would attend daily and learn the Torah. Those who excelled at this would continue their schooling with the prophets. Those who didn't demonstrate excellence would go on to apprentice for a trade. Again, those who excelled in the prophets continued their studies and even more scripture. The best of the best would be given the opportunity to learn from an experienced Pharisee. Sitting at his feet and following him around, digesting his teachings and arguments, learning them for himself. The Apostle Paul bears witness to much of this in the various autobiographical comments he makes throughout his own letters. This was the world that Nicodemus knew. When we meet him, he's already a fully formed Pharisee. He's seen as a leader of the Jews holding a position on the council. He's sent under the cover of darkness as an envoy to better understand who this Jesus is. It was an uneasy peace among the various sects of Judaism, made all the more tense by a Roman occupation. Around the time of Jesus, the Roman occupations seemed to be proceeding as well as could be expected. However, the Romans could be quite brutal in their efforts to maintain control of conquered lands. Pilate, the Roman governor, was exceptional in his ability to be brutal. So brutal was he that he'd been recalled to Rome over his methods and would eventually be relieved of duty because of them. And that's saying something for the Romans. So there was a great deal of tension, and Jesus was new. He was drawing lots of attention and saying things that may well ignite the powder keg that was the land of Israel. That was something a Pharisee like Nicodemus wouldn't want for his people. So inquiries had to be made and a better understanding of Jesus cultivated. Nicodemus and Jesus have a back and forth conversation about the nature of God and God's presence in the world and particularly in Jesus' own life. This is all perfectly above board for a Pharisee like Nicodemus and a rabbi like Jesus. Having conversation, posing questions and wrestling over the nature of God is the bread and butter of what they do. It's a bit odd it's being done at night. It makes it seem suspicious and covert. But then again, it is. As we said earlier, it ends. And on the gospel moves to John the Baptist. But what happened? Did Nicodemus have more questions? A response, perhaps, to what Jesus said? Did Jesus have questions? Did they just part ways? John simply doesn't tell us. And that's something for us. Conversations with Jesus just don't end. They begin and then they continue throughout our lives. And that's what happens next with Nicodemus. Later in John's Gospel, we meet Nicodemus again. Jesus, the Pharisee and chief priest, have all come to Jerusalem for the Festival of Booths commemorating the wilderness wanderings of their ancestors for over 40 years when they lived in booths, 
what we would call tents. All these events happened in and around the temple. Now, festival times were particularly tense in Jerusalem. You had a higher than usual number of people and strong national and religious fervor was coursing through everyone. Tensions between the various sects of Judaism and their Roman occupiers would be stretched to their limit. The Romans knew this, and for that reason they built the main fortress for their garrison in Jerusalem right next to the temple, on a hill allowing them to look in and keep an eye on the events taking place. Jesus is there in teaching, gathering a crowd, and you might could say making a scene. On the last day, as tensions are rising, Jesus is standing and shouting that all who are thirsty should come to him. John tells us that Jesus has divided the crowd, with some declaring him a prophet and others wanting to arrest him. You can really feel the tension building in this scene. Given the various factions and sects, some opt for violence and others are inclined to more peaceful solutions. But one thing is certain, this could all end poorly. The group of chief priests and Pharisees are curious to question Jesus as well, and a discussion breaks out among them over who this Jesus is and just what should be done about him. Nicodemus speaks up as one having interacted with Jesus, advocating that judgment should not be cast on Jesus as he has not been heard by them, as the law indicates. His colleagues seem to think that Nicodemus is getting a little too friendly with Jesus. And guess what? He is. The conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus continues. There's another instance in John's Gospel where we possibly meet Nicodemus prior to his conclusion in the story. Now it's important to say that this is merely a possibility because we simply do not know. Still, I find the mere possibility to be tantalizing. Following Jesus' arrest, John tells us that Peter and another disciple follow Jesus to the high priest's house. The other disciple goes in while Peter must first wait outside before his fellow disciple can vouch for him and allow him admittance. John tells us that the other disciple goes in with Jesus. Now we have no idea who this is. We may well be tempted to believe that he is one of the twelve, and perhaps he is. Some commentators suggest this might be John, the author of this gospel, discreetly placing himself here in the story. I don't know that I buy that, because he names himself elsewhere in the story. Also, the twelve disciples are not exactly the sort who are known to rub elbows with the high priest. So who is this disciple? It's a wider term that can mean any of the near hundreds of followers Jesus has at this time. So who is he? Again, we don't know. But I'd like to suggest the possibility exists that it's Nicodemus. He would certainly be known to the high priest. We know he's in the area. Given his involvement with Jesus, he's undoubtedly aware of and interested in these events and he's begun to demonstrate the behavior of one becoming a disciple. It's interesting. Might Nicodemus be this disciple? That would mean that he is now fully a follower of Jesus. 
That would mean he's supporting Peter during this time, and that would mean that he's being something of an advocate for Jesus as he's on trial. Again, we don't know. But I find the possibility interesting. And the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus continues. The last we see of Nicodemus in John's gospel is following Jesus' death. All but Mary and his mother, John, and a group of women have fled. There are two others still here as well. Joseph of Arimathea, and you guessed it, Nicodemus. They remain in this dark time. Specifically, Joseph and Nicodemus go to Pilate, the man who signed Jesus' death warrant and asked for his body. Think on that for a moment. They walk into the halls of power to ask for the body of Jesus, when nearly all have fled in fear. Regardless of when Nicodemus became a disciple, he is clearly one now. One does not walk into the halls of power like that unless one is boldly, boldly declaring that they are in league with this tortured and executed man. One does not carry 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe if you're not committed. You don't do the work of burial if you don't care. The conversation begun under the cloak of darkness and is now out in the light. It has continued and it has resulted in Nicodemus being a disciple of Jesus. So often we like to focus on that one moment that changes us. That one moment when we choose to follow Jesus. That one moment we made a decision. There was no one moment for Nicodemus. It began one night, somewhere between coming to Jesus concealed by the dark and walking into Pilate's chambers in the light of day, that Nicodemus was formed into a disciple. The conversation didn't end that night, and it doesn't end with Jesus' death either. The conversation with Jesus is not over because we're not being we're not done being formed. I wonder, when did your conversation with Jesus begin? Was it in baptism? Or perhaps at the knee of a beloved grandparent reading you a Bible story? Somewhere for you the conversation began, and along the way that conversation has continued. It shaped and molded you into a disciple, and it continues to shape and mold you from who you are to who God is calling you to be. Nicodemus began as a Pharisee, full of rules and certainty about how right his perspective was. And the conversation went on and on, until he was a disciple, certain about who Jesus was. So today, may you know that the conversation with Jesus is happening with you still. It's happening now, and it will continue to shape and mold you into a disciple boldly living with Jesus.